Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello, welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. Before we get into today's topic, I do want to note that this past week was our second anniversary of being on the air at Wayo. It's Woo! Woo! to go! Woo! Um, it's been... <laughs> A thrill, really, to be able to put this show on almost every week for two years. More weeks than not, we'll say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I'm honored to have the faith of all the people at WAO and DSA who have, for some reason, let me run this project effectively. Because <laughs> you're doing a good job. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's tons of fun to record these. Uh, and speaking of, if you're interested in coming on, just shoot us an email and we'll uh, be glad to, to hear from you. Very, um, very glad. Very glad to hear from you. Uh, no, it's a great opportunity to talk about something that impacts every single one of us because everybody either has to work or knows somebody who works. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, beyond just, you know, discussing work is, is like your career and your, your thing that you revolve your entire life around, we don't really analyze or think about work in any other capacity. And this show, if nothing else, is doing that. I hope we do a lot more than that as well. Mm-hmm. But if nothing else, it's, it's an opportunity to examine work from a more philosophic pers- perspective. The, the thing that noted Punching Out contributor Zoe once said to me is uh, the thing she likes most about our show is that work is such a good vector precisely because we all have a common experience of it in the society that we all live in Um, that it means that through work you get to so many other things and I think it's it's so much fun coming up with new ways to look at this topic because often it is bleak and it can be irritating or sad to discuss this, but we always try to come up with a way in which we look towards the future and how this can be done better or done away with if it, if it can't be done better. And it, it really, I think, gives us all something to hope for. Yeah, absolutely. Like we, we never examine work or we just take work as, as it's just how the way it is. And it's really nice to examine and think of another way. Mm-hmm. Now, having... All that nice things said about <laughs> this project. Uh, I will say that um, as somebody who helps out on the project a lot, um, I was kind of rubbing my hands together when I saw that we have a UAW strike ongoing. Oh, nice. That's because... Fastball down the middle. Yeah. Very much our alley. If you don't know, and it's possible you might not, just given the relative size of the UAW in modern times... Um, The United Automobile Workers are on strike currently. We're recording this on Sunday. It's possible that might change by the time this airs, though right now it doesn't seem particularly likely. Um, They are striking at uh, the plants of General Motors. 49,000 workers, I believe, are the the number on strike across the country. And it's been kind of cool to see. Yeah, it really is. I don't – we've had little strikes – here and there in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is for, you know, 
this is this is really cool. This is pretty historic. Well, and in particular, it's when you talk to people about union activity or strikes or whatever, they'll tell you, many people will tell you, well, you know, I understand why, I don't understand why teachers or secretaries need a union. I understand what miners or auto workers do. Well, here you go. Uh, this is one that it, even if you're that kind of person, you have to get behind this. I mean, they are striking for, it, it doesn't get more traditional than yes. this in terms of labor activism. Maybe by, by massive, I should have said more traditional strikes. Because you're right, we have had teacher strikes and everything in the past right. few years. I, I, that's sort of tangential to something I was going to say, which is that, you know, many times um, when we talk about union work, it Automobile work, you know, manufacturing work is kind of the archetype for that in mm -hmm. this country. Though, obviously, in the modern day, you know, unions are just, you're just as likely to find them almost in, say, uh, media or mm -hmm. teaching, obviously, and any number of other fields. We've seen in the past year Verizon workers go on strike. Mm -hmm. the, the number of strikes that have been too many to count. And there's this phrase that... Um, you know, striking is like a muscle, you know, mm -hmm. you have to practice it. And, but when you do, you know, you tend to see these sorts of a strike wave, if you will, yep. in which one strike almost begets another. That's true. And that's true of union work in general is that the success of one, one union or workers in one industry snowballs and, and definitely affects another industry, which is the power, you know, power of unions are, they're mm -hmm. fantastic. Cannot say enough good things. Um, and that's particularly true of the UAW because the contracts that they were able to win from General Motors and Chrysler and Ford back in the day set the tone not only for the car industry but for union work in general in this mm -hmm. country. Like the stuff that they were able to win from the big three car makers influenced uh, every union industry in the United States. Yeah, as we will get into later in the show especially, uh, the UAW has very much been central to the labor movement in the U.S., at least especially in the middle of the 20th century. Um, now, here in the modern day, what exactly is UAW on strike about? What, what, are they, what are the issues at play? So basically what happened here is that over the – okay, so – the big three car makers in 2007, in the midst of the Great Recession, were bailed out. They were bailed out by you and by me, by people who pay taxes to the government, who then took that money and gave it to these three car makers to protect the jobs and infrastructure that those company that belonged to those companies. Mm -hmm. And as a result, those companies then turned around and asked their employees to basically come up with a deal uh, in which they would give up some wage increases. And they would give up other sorts of uh, benefits here and there, especially pensions, uh, which used to be defined benefit and now would become defined contribution in exchange for still having their jobs, still getting some kind of cost of living increase and still having job security and not getting all those plants closed. And the UAW agreed. And what's happened over the – that was in 2007. So what's happened over the next 12 years is that despite the fact that they said we're not going to close any more plants, they absolutely have closed plants. Despite the fact that there wasn't – there weren't supposed to be uh, more layoffs and more downsizing, there have been more layoffs and more downsizing. Mm -hmm. Pension plants have gone to crap because they're administered in ways that basically allow the pension plans to run out of money, which is a thing that a pension plan should not be able to do. And 
in the meantime, what they've also started doing is creating a two-tiered system under which senior UAW employees uh, are making 30, 40 bucks an hour. Newer hires are making, if they're lucky, half that and have worse benefits as well. So part of what the UAW strike is striking for is actually to balance that out and put everybody on the same pay and benefit scale. Mm-hmm. And you know, 2007, the beginnings of the uh, Great Recession, as it's known, you know, GM effectively went to workers and said, hey, times are hard. We need some uh, shared sacrifice, I, I think mm-hmm. was the- Tightening the belt. Was the saying of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, now it's 2019. Everybody's raving about this economy. GM has been profitable for several years now. I think $35 billion in the last year It's uh, yeah. of profit, not income, which they didn't pay any taxes on either. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's how the entire economy is working is, is for the past 12 years, it's been continuously, well, the economy is really not in good shape yet. Okay. Yeah. The stock market is going to hit maybe 30,000 next year, but- you know, uh, wages have not increased at all. Loan and uh, uh, finance for for regular people is still really hard to come by. All the effects from the recession are still in effect for everybody else, and that's what everybody keeps talking about. So they can keep spinning this as as like we're still in crisis mode. We still have crunch. We still need to make sure that you know we're keeping costs down. Every single industry is doing this. Can startup continue mindset. to do, mm-hmm. yeah, the startup mindset, and and it's it's we're in we've been in crisis mode for twelve years. Mm-hmm. Um, my entire grown adult life has been like this, and it's very frustrating. I'm tired mm-hmm. of it. I'm tired. And 2007, we should also note, it happens to be the year of the last time UAW went on strike at GM plants. Mm-hmm. Um, another issue that's come up. It, from strikers has been, you know, there's this disparity between the unionized workforce and the temporary workforce, temporary in the largest air quotes you can find, because effectively they are, um, the term is permatemps, because despite being treated like temporary workers with all the uh, lack of benefits that Mm -hmm. entails, they're working just as much as the full-time workers and getting very little to show for it. Uh, Quoting here from Steve Frisk, who's a UAW worker, interviewed by Sarah Lam in these times, quote, we have temporary employees in our building and they have really no benefits or path to full-time employment. We have converted quite a few of our temps to full-time employment. We have pushed that with our local management and they've been pretty good at working on that with us. The temp workers face long hours, not much pay, minimal benefits, including no vacation time. That's our issue. They are right alongside us on the line doing the same job, and they should be compensated in the same way. Which the, the fact that you have a union steward, which this man is, making that case is, I think, an important – number one, it's an important reason why we should all hope that this strike succeeds, but also is an important distinction with union leaders of the past because yes. one of the reasons that uh, union activity, labor activism, that everything kind of – got so much worse for working people mm-hmm. in the latter half of the 20th century is that unions began to see the world as basically union workers against other workers, against mm-hmm. be they foreign workers, be they temporary workers, be they uh, non-union workers in the same industry. And instead of trying to push for an expansive mission of labor, what they did was try to ensure benefits for their own members. Mm-hmm. And all that ended up doing was playing into the hands of capital, which was already trying to split them 
from other people. The same thing they're trying to do here with the permit mm-hmm. temps. They're, they're trying to create this two-tiered system so that you know the unionized workers uh, will see these uh, permanent temporary workers as coming for their wages and their benefits. And I'm very heartened to see that the UAW is refusing to align themselves with that false dichotomy mm-hmm. because that doesn't exist. GM has all the money in the world. They could easily make all of the workers full-time, pay them full benefits, no problem. They are choosing not to. Yeah, mm-hmm. They could probably pay all of them just out of like three executives as pay, but they're choosing not to. Right. So, Reading also from uh, Jane Slaughter in Labor Notes, quote, GM weakens standards further by relying on these so-called temporary workers to, for far less pay around $15 an hour and worse benefits, kind of summarizing what we've been saying here. Quote uh, from a Jesse Kelly, who, is a, who works at a GM tech center. As a temp, you have absolutely no rights, she said. Temps are allowed to miss only three days of work per year, unpaid, with advance approval, and can be forced to work seven-day weeks. Thanks. Many stick it out for years, as Kelly did, in hopes of eventually being elevated to what GM calls in-progression status, tier what? two. So that's not what? even tier one. Right. That's tier two. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. Oh, man. I mean, this is this is a classic feature of, again, late 20th century labor activism. Because so as a sort of member of the New York State educational retirement system, mm-hmm. I believe I am on tier six. Is that good? No. <laughs> but it's better than the current tier because there have been two more since then. And I or I think one more since then, and I only signed up three years ago. But this is what happened. You had uh, capital, local, state governments playing senior and more established employees against the younger and less established ones for as long as they could, knowing that a lot of people would take that deal and Mm -hmm. and they would push for that generational uh, split. So tier one in NICERS is full pension, defined benefit, the whole thing, what you should be getting, what every employee should be getting. Behind that, each lower tier requires the employee to pay in more and more until it's just fully privatized and it's through TIAA and you don't know what the hell you're going to get at the end of the year. Same as everybody else, you're just in a slightly better fund with a slightly better rate of profit because the pool is larger. That's it. That, cool. That's literally all that differentiates you from somebody who's working for like a mismanaged charter school who's uh, made up of 17 hedge fund managers. Continuing from this Labor Notes article, quote, the last week of February when the profit sharing checks come, we have two workers standing side by side that have done the same job all year long and one gets 11000 and the other gets nothing, said Michael Heron, UAW Local 1853 Chairman at Spring Hill. So That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Classic. It's noted a, a bit in the uh, interview in, in these times that there's sort of a uh, parallel to you know this increase on temporary workers and what we see in the gig economy. Mm-hmm. It's all about you know reclassifying workers until you don't have to actually give them any of the benefits you give your capital W workers. Hmm. Well, yeah, and it's it's trying to trend you know eventually as we probably all can see coming, all of us will be into independent contractors mm-hmm. in the coming years. That's that's where we're headed. And well, no. 
and and corporations know that they can that they can get away with this mm-hmm. because no matter which party is in power agencies like the National Labor Relations Board and um, any basically anything else in the Department of Labor that could stop them and certainly anything in the judicial branch that could stop them are now all controlled by either conservatives who are perfectly fine with the state of affairs or corporate-friendly Democrats who are fine with the state of affairs as long as nobody uses any naughty words. <laughs> right. That and anybody making policy decisions is somebody who already considers themselves to be an independent con- contractor. Mm-hmm. They're they're a, a consultant, or they are their own boss, or they uh, worked for a while in corporate land and then you know mm-hmm. did a startup or something. These are all the people who are making policy decisions in the first place, so they don't see anything wrong inherently with being an independent contractor and being forced to do it your own way. Yeah, to them that's that's freedom. That's freedom. That, that's liberty. That's you can have as many revenue streams as you want. Mm-hmm. But of course, they're forgetting the part where they have an insane amount of capital to start with. If you're, you know, the president's appointed autos are or whatever the hell, uh, you presumably have a cushion that if you don't do your job well right. and you have for some reason to look for work for a while, you're not going to starve. You're, you're not you're not even going to lose out on anything. You just might not go out to dinner every night of the month. And to your point that they can get away with this sort of reclassification, we've seen this in the gig economy, particularly Uber and Lyft for several years now. There have been these lawsuits and efforts to get Uh, those drivers classified as employees instead of independent contractors. And California recently passed a bill called AB5 that successfully does force Uber and Lyft to treat these workers as employees with all the benefits and et cetera that entails. Right. I was just thinking about that, but didn't I, I heard something about how the CEO of Lyft or Uber, one of them said, oh, we're just going to completely ignore that law. Yes. yes. That's cool. That's, That's normal. Again, and they can do it because it works they know. for everybody else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. On the on the one hand, it's good to see California using their status as what is it like the world's eighth largest economy or Some whatever all by themselves. Fifth. There you go. They're very proud of this number. Largest yeah. state. Yeah, know, using populous. using that power to actually you know do something that is an unabated good. On the other hand, um, t- yeah, the CEO of n- none of these companies care. I mean, in the end, one of the lessons that we keep harping on here is that the legislative and judicial and executive branches can only protect us so far. And while we certainly need them on our side and we want to have them do things that are good for us as a working class, we can't rely on their protection. We have to rely on building worker power from the bottom up. (laughs) And not to stray too far from the UAW strike that is the focus of today's episode, but I'm reading from (laughs) – No, a bad. I'm reading from uh, an article in The Verge about this Uber and Lyft thing. Uh, Quote, AB5 in California enshrines the so-called ABC test for determining whether someone is a contractor or employee. Some form of an ABC test is already law in many states, including Massachusetts, Virginia, and New Jersey. In those states, Uber and Lyft drivers should be considered employees, but the companies have all but shut down private enforcement through forced arbitration agreements, said Catherine Ruckelshaus, general counsel of the National Employment Law Project. Forced arbitration agreements, the ones that were just generally legalized by friend of the show, Neil Gorsuch. (laughs) Friend of the show, I like that. Uh, Yeah, okay, so, so to bring it back to the UAW, so essentially they're, they're trying to get the, the, these, 
auto companies are trying to get it to the point where basically everybody's a temp worker. Everybody's what, an independent contractor. Yeah. What What in the world would that even look like? Bad. Because ultimately, they still have a boss. They still have a, a, a directive from They're still from working full Yeah, they're time. still working full time. They're still working in the building, right. in the factory, doing the set job, on the line. Mm-hmm. Like, how... I, I, how would that even look? Um, you know, originally when these temporary workers were allowed in these plants, um, they were supposed to only be for, you know, absentees, illnesses, you know, right. temporary. Mm-hmm. Right. But instead you have a situation now where there are temporary workers who have been there for several years. Right. Like at, at what point does it stop being temporary? Yeah, basically. And, and it's, you know, at my job they had somebody, there was two people who had been doing this one job for years and one of them retired and then they just never hired a second guy until he got so fed up he quit and then they just have one guy now a, a younger guy obviously doing the job of the two other people that that two other people were doing so it's got to be something very similar that it's, everybody everybody sees in every it, it's reduction in force by attrition that's mm-hmm. uh, at some workplaces if they can't get more revenue in from year to year and they have to make cuts and they don't want to because it would reduce employee morale or make the place look bad. What you can do sometimes is rely on that. Wait for somebody to retire, wait for somebody to leave, perhaps, I don't know, give them a slight push on Mm -hmm. the way out the door. Mm -hmm. And then you can say, well, we didn't have to fire anybody. We didn't have to downsize, but mysteriously fewer people work here now than used to. Fewer people work here. We're still expected to produce more every year. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's this temporary thing is a legal fiction. I mean, the amazing thing about being a company or a corporation in the United States, Brian, you've mentioned this before mm-hmm. on this show, is that because you effectively work in you effectively fill the functions of a government, mm-hmm. you get to legislate. So whereas in previous times, you know, the exact definition of what a serf was mm-hmm. would change from manner to manner. Over here, what you have is one company can say, well, we're going to use temp workers for substituting for absentees and illnesses and so on. And the automakers can just say, no, temp worker means whatever we decide it means now. Yeah. Uh, and if that means you're there for years with no path to full-time employment, that's fine. Nobody's yeah. going to tell us any different. What's really gross about it is that two-tier that tier system you were talking about, mm-hmm. Ryan, where you, you're a perma worker and they'll, they'll lead you on for years and years – until mm-hmm. eventually you're like bumped up to one where it's like you're in transition or whatever. So you're, you still don't have any rights, but you're like a little bit closer. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the really, really, really gross part to me. You mean, you mean the people who are in progression? Yes, that was the Like word. in a freaking chrysalis? <laughs> <laughs> and it um, just uh, come across this statistic, which um, if to the extent that these perma temps are a you know, bad thing at GM and the plants being described here by the UAW, it should be noted that the non-union auto plants in the U.S., the ones largely owned by foreign automakers, uh, have a percentage of temporary workers who are like two to three times as high as mm-hmm. in these UAW mm-hmm. plants. So there That's is that. Bad. Yeah. So way to go for UAW for actually fighting for these people and mm-hmm. and, and doing that. That's fantastic for and, them. Noah, you made this point before that it's not always been the case that unions have shown their solidarity to the people on the fringes, and but it's a necessary thing 
if unions are going to succeed in this country. If there's any silver lining mm-hmm. to the assault on labor that has been carried out by really everything since the Great Recession, because mm-hmm. this goes through the Obama administration, through the last years, uh, through the Bush, the, the Bush administration, through mm-hmm. the Clinton administration, really, at this point. But if there's any silver lining to this, it's that I think unions are belatedly but finally realizing that they can't have a restrictive, exclusive mission anymore. Mm-hmm. They have to adopt a more expansive view of what constitutes uh, a worker, what constitutes a possible labor activist, what constitutes the core of their membership. The the Janus decision, um, you would have thought at the mm-hmm. time, would have been a, a real you know death blow to the labor movement. Mm-hmm. And instead what we've seen is that it's emboldened unions to actually realize that maybe one of the reasons that things like that could pass is partly because unions for such a long time had focused on uh, treating the smallest number of people possible. Mm-hmm. And, and they're beginning to realize that they can't get away with that anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. After this break, we'll come back and we'll talk a bit about the history of the UAW and why this strike in particular matters. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Still hey, guys. We've been talking about the ongoing UAW strike and the context in which it exists in this present day, but I I do want to take some time going back here to the history of the UAW and, you know, why that name holds such significance when in the uh, discussions about the American labor movement. It's, as I said in the first segment, it's sort of been central to that story in many ways. Um, UAW started in 1935, shortly after the Wagner Act, I want to say, um, which the Wagner Act officially required employers to recognize unions. They, they could no longer just refuse to acknowledge that a union was present and pretend they weren't there. The, the legislative version of you can no longer stick your fingers in your ears and go, la, 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 I can't hear you. Cool, now do that for independent contractors. Yeah. Mm. And within two years, uh, UAW was an important part of a strike in Flint that saw 140,000 people, you know, sit down or walk out on the job. Um, Just a couple. It's the Flash Flint sit-down strike of 1936 and 37. started in December of 36 and went on into February. They were striking for union recognition, which was supposed to be insured by the law, but then as now, Companies were just saying, mm, we don't have to follow. We that. don't have to do this. Mm-hmm. We can just hire. There's a lot of people we can hire mm-hmm. to get around this problem. Yeah. And to force GM to come to the bargaining table, strikers took the tactic of sitting down in the plants, like occupying the plants at which they worked in order to shut down any sort of manufacturing. You know? Yeah, you couldn't hire scabs then because right. where were they going to work? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't build another plant Pre- for precisely. them to work in. Squatting, basically. Yeah. I like this. Factory squatting. Good. 
um, management said, you know, this is an illegal tactic, ignoring the ways in which they were ignoring the law. But, um, Classic. In January, they cut off the heat at this factory. There was a, a violent conflict between the workers and police slash, you know, you, uh, business thugs, thugs you know, um, where the workers, like, used fire hoses against the police, you know, January in Michigan. Heck yeah. Um, well, you know, also being, you know, hit with, like, whatever we- weaponry the police had, which was presumably much more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, after this conflict, the, the UAW won union recognition at GM, and that really set off a string of strikes. Like we said in the first segment, you know, one strike happens, more follow. It's a good thing to have. Mm. That that I think is why you see every every time one of these happens for the corporations, for the business press that's friendly to them, every strike is 2012 all mm-hmm. over again. You know, it's apocalyptic. Yeah. Because if one is allowed to stand, then there will be another one, there will be a third. So every single one has to be resisted with all of the violence at their disposal. Mm-hmm. And, and some of that violence is toned down in these modern days, but... Uh, you saw on Twitter, I think it was some. Um, yeah. There was a, some a striker arrested in Arlington, Texas, last night. Right. I believe. Yeah. So this the striker in a UAW striker in Arlington, Texas, was arrested just you know peacefully, pro, you know picketing, and the the police just went in and arrested them for no good reason. Having the temerity to demand his rights exactly. as a worker. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's like every time uh, uh, you see in the news something about how you know, a, a striker was being violent or they're, you know, thugs mm-hmm. or whatever. I don't believe them. They're lying. 100%. Yeah. Every time. I, I do think uh, we can all hope that the end result of this is that as a working class, we understand the forces that are arrayed against us and that they're all friends. They all sit at the same tables. They all eat dinner together. They, their children hang all hang out with each other. They so, attend Noah's school together. <laughs> they do insider Unfortunately, trading Unfortunately, that is 100% true. So, yes, uh, the police, the corporations, uh, a lot of your politicians, a lot of your, your – even your supposedly neutral policymakers, they're all on the same side and it's not yours. Mm-hmm. And, and the sooner that we all recognize that and begin to build our institutions in opposition to that uh, rather than – uh, trying to work with them, you know, I, I think we'll be better off. Now, we didn't get into this in the first segment, but there's been some tension between UAW leadership and the rank and file. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there's a corruption scandal ongoing at the UAW, and a lot of rank and file have reasons not to trust leadership. But while, you know, some have point to this and say, oh, there you go, corrupt unions, it should be noted that, like, it's always been the case that the rank and file and leadership don't trust each other. Yeah. Um, and the successes that unions have had has been largely in spite of their leadership at times. Um, just in, in 1937, after the successful sit-down strike at Flint, by November of that year, UAW was discouraging you know, sit-down strikes at Pontiac. It was you know, put, putting down these strikes after... More than 100 of them had to happen across the country in the months in between. Eventually, UAW said, okay, you can't do the wildcat thing anymore. You, you can't strike without our permission. And promptly, the strike wave went away. This is something that – so 
a while back, I got to see a documentary film about Dolores Huerta, and okay. you get to see where some of the people that just for the listener's sake, uh, uh, who is Dolores? Uh, Dolores Huerta was one of the is. main organizers. Is well, she still was alive. at the time. <laughs> okay, okay. Still one alive, of the though. main organizers <laughs> for the United Farm Workers of America, which. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's no longer affiliated with that union because uh, various things that happened in the 90s around leadership there. Mm -hmm. But at the time that she... So during the film, you get to see how various people who were very much involved in the era of the striking, it's the grape growers and, and things like that, the boycott, how they've ended up being in other places. And one of the sort of consistent threads of the way that American movements like this Mm -hmm. evolve is that the people in them calcify. They go along to get along. They become part of... Bureaucracy. Yes. Uh, And even if your organization is meant to give power to workers, once you become divorced from their experience, that is very slowly going to also divorce you from their demands and their needs. Mm -hmm. And that has been a consistent concern for union leadership from day one, because on the one hand, you you do need dedicated organizers and administrators who don't also have to work a full-time job, because otherwise you can't get anything done as a union. On the other hand, you also can't have these people so removed from the life of a working person that they no longer understand what's best for them. Now, um... An example, perhaps, of exactly what you just laid out is uh, Walter Reuther. Are either of you familiar with him? Yes. I am not. Uh, for, for the listeners, again, he was the president of the UAW from 1946 to 1970. And as I was doing research for the show, he kept popping up his name, naturally because he was you know, a long-serving president of this union, but also he had been there in, at the formative stages of the union in the 30s. Um, He'd, he got beat up, yeah, literally. Mm-hmm. Oh. He was attacked by Ford uh, thugs, effectively. Um, mm-hmm. He was originally fired from Ford in like 1932 because he'd been organizing a uh, rally for the for Norman Thomas, the socialist candidate for president at the hmm. time. And then he went on to become member of a leader in UAW. He led one of its first successful strikes at a Ford plant in Detroit. Um, he was attacked, as you mentioned, in what's called the Battle of the Overpass, um, thrown down multiple flights of stairs. Jesus. Later in his life, he would be attacked uh, through his window by a shotgun and somehow survived. He was only able to use his left arm uh, for the rest of his life to shake hands just because of the... And mm. curiously, the FBI did not investigate this. Hmm. Oh. Um, <laughs> One wonders why... Th- uh, J. Edgar Hoover had a quote when asked to investigate this that I cannot say on air because it managed to be both racist and sexist. Wow. Oh, my God. Oh, amazing. Uh, um, anyway. The difecta. Now, I mentioned these things because, you know, a union leadership used to be perceived as a threat to mm-hmm. management. It used to be something that companies were willing to kill over. Um, mm-hmm. It should be noted, Walter Reuther died in 1970 in a plane crash that had a few suspicious circumstances to it. Anyways, hmm. now, despite you know him being perceived as the great big threat, he was also somebody who, uh, to use the word you used, calcified over the course of his career. 
you know, he went from being a member of the Socialist Party who spoke out against, you know, red scare tactics by management to somebody who purged communists from the UAW. And as vice president of the AFL-CIO, purged, you know, communist unions from, how would you describe the AFL-CIO? Uh, a labor federation? Yes, maybe? federation is the best I word. mean, that's literally in the, in the name. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 1941, he was vice president of the UAW at the time and won a resolution barring communists from holding union office. 1942, he helped negotiate an agreement allowing GM to fire Wildcat strikers. This was at the time of Walter. World War II, and right. the major unions had agreed not to go on strike during war production for the sake of the country. But many rank-and-file workers went on strike anyways. Mm-hmm. Good. This divide between rank-and-file and leadership persists over time. Well, and the thing is, in, in more fairness than I think union leadership usually deserves on these on these mm-hmm. topics. So again, I harp on this every time I'm on the show, I'm non-union, but there is an advocacy group where I work that does try to sit down and negotiate with management. And when one way that you can always tell who's the new person in the room essentially is when they're saying, "Well, why can't we just ask for this or why can't we just ask for that?" And people who've been through several rounds of these negotiations say, well, we could, but if that's the case, they're going to try and take this back or they're trying to, or they'll try to cut this benefit or they maybe won't give us this increase and so on. And then they're always at pains to point out. And the uh, a few years ago before I started working at this place that the negotiations were much more hostile than they used to be, like to the point of just locking the building. So it could have been, the negotiations right now are much friendlier and much more above board than they have been in literally a decade at this point. And so the current leadership is very much at pains to maintain that climate, and they're worried about what asking for more is going to do in in those terms, right? So again, I I see where somebody like Walter Reuther is thinking that if they – repeatedly bow to the demands of their most radical members, uh, they might get shut out of the negotiating table. But the problem is they're there to represent those workers anyway. That's mm-hmm. their job. Eventually you don't have any you know, people left if you purge all your radicals. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you start yeah. finding people who aren't communists, just people who aren't crazy about this whole communist witch hunt thing. Yes, yeah. and then you eventually start – uh, what you eventually get is a union full of people who will vote for candidates who will stab the union in the back, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sort of off topic, but you, they keep saying they, the the world at large keeps saying, well, as you get older, you get more conservative. Well, yeah, it's because as you get older, you increasingly come across people who are actively trying to repress any kind of revolutionary sentiment whatsoever. Mm-hmm. This sort of touches on what you and I talked about on our last show about, you know, free speech in the workplace. Mm. You know, the Red Scare was very much, you know, employers purging people on the basis of their political views. You know, it is we have this historic example of a time when the left was on the receiving end of, you know, employer power in this way. You know, people losing their jobs, people losing much more than their jobs. And Reuther, as head of the UAW, helped speed that along, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And I I talk about Reuther specifically and this period of the UAW because I I think 
There are some listeners who might not realize just how big a figure the UAW, how big Reuther was in the public consciousness of the time. Um, he was mentioned like during a presidential debate in 1960. Mm-hmm. He spoke to Nikita Khrushchev in 1959. He you know, was a big public figure. The UAW had a role in the civil rights movement of the 60s. You know, it wasn't always you know, the best, but uh, Reuther was one of the few white labor leaders at the front of the March on Washington. So mm-hmm. where you go in this period in American history, you see the UAW, you see auto workers and the union movement, and you don't see that today. There's a very big mm-hmm. disparity between what we had then and what we have now. Yeah. Well, part of that's just the changing economy mm-hmm. is, you know, auto workers, they're still held up as the biggest part of our traditional American economy. But, you know, the service sector makes up more than half of all jobs out there. Even so, you don't see much about service sector. Unions. No, that's you true. Know, name a Who union president, about? either of you. Mary Kay Henry. You don't count. <laughs> you always know these okay. things. The she's president not, of the CEO. Okay. She's not the one I would have gone with, uh, Randy Weidengarten, okay. the American Federation of Teachers. But neither of them have the sort of public prominence right. of figure like yeah, Walter that's Reuther absolutely in, true. in the 1950s. That's absolutely true. And I don't know, at least in, in my understanding of history, basically the death knell for all public, big public unions was the airline strike mm-hmm. in the 80s. Or the, 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 the public strike. sector. Yeah. 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 So like that that was basically it. Mm-hmm. And then you the the coal miner strike in in Great yeah. Britain. You you can attribute much of labor's loss of power to the decisions of leaders like Walter Reuther unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um at the same time he was somebody who in the 40s under Truman was pushing for a national healthcare system. He was continuing that push until, you know, the year he died 1970, you know, under Nixon when that nearly became law of the land. And as in the final segment of our show, we're going to talk more about that and what healthcare has to do with, you know, the labor movement then and now. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. If you enjoy our show, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. If you'd like to share your stories, you can email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. We've been talking about the UAW strike and trying to put it into historical context of you know what the UAW was and what, why that matters now. And one, one thing that we came across in reading up on this is uh, in 1970, there was also a UAW strike. This was the end of the 60s, another high point for labor in this country. Um, labor radicalism at any rate. UAW went on strike against GM. And part of this strike, uh, Walter Reuther, still the uh, president of the UAW, was pushing GM to help out in his uh, separate campaign for a national health care plan, which would effectively provide health insurance or health care to all Americans. And mm, it's funny how times change, you know? <laughs> Um, so before the break, we were talking about how Reuther was somebody who started out on very much the radical wing of the UAW. Mm-hmm. 
And then as he, coincidentally, as he gained power within the organization, Mm -hmm. became more interested in maintaining that power and being the sole channel of negotiation, then, you know, funny how that happens. Hierarchies are funny. Indeed. (laughs) So it's interesting to me because what that tells you is that Reuther was interested, sort of backing into this, he was interested in making this not an issue over which future strikes would be fought. Mm-hmm. His his pitch to GM was that if there's a national health care plan, then this is something that we don't have to fight you about anymore. Mm-hmm. And also it was partly a pitch to GM on the grounds that, you know, health care benefits are largely what made union workers more expensive than non-union workers. Correct, you know? yeah. At, at the time, I think something like 90% of union workers had health insurance when the in the general population, this ratio was like two-thirds. Yeah. So huge disparity in health coverage between union and non-union at this time. And right. So the thought is, let's remove this from the equation. You save money. We save the effort. And it's not surprising to me that GM essentially turned him down on that mm-hmm. because – so one of the quirks that – American health insurance as a system has in it is that it was employer-based from the beginning, which is not necessarily true in other countries, Mm -hmm. which might surprise a lot of our listeners. In a lot of other places, health insurance has either always been something that was government-based or if it was in delivered through some other institution, it's not necessarily through your employer. It didn't go through the employer phase. Right. Right. Which, very adolescent, so that's Mm -hmm. a good term for it. But anyway, so... In the U.S., it's always been employer-based. And I think employers, even when you try to point out to them that, uh, you know, a, a national health care plan, a single-player health care plan, Medicare for All, whatever you want to call it, would ultimately save them money by allowing them to spend that overhead on other things or pull it back into profits or whatever, mm-hmm. which is not the best case to make for it, but whatever. Let's go with it for now. Mm-hmm they don't want to give it up because ultimately what they want is power. Mm -hmm. And having that ability to say to an employee, I am the thing standing between you and getting treatment for your cancer or your diabetes Mm -hmm. or whatever it is, I am the only thing that keeps you out of the cold, that they treasure that more than they treasure even their bottom line. And that is saying something. That's Mm -hmm. true. It's it's amazing what leverage the power of a life of death will give you. Mm -hmm. And to this point, in our current UAW strike, GM cut off their employees' health care, forcing the union to pay these things, you know, either through COBRA or through the strike fund. Mm -hmm. At any rate, it places a huge burden on the workers who who had good health care plans through the private sector, the way we're all supposed to strive towards, and now are, Yep, they're out in the cold. Let's be clear. Stories about strikers with cancer or whose family members have cancer who now aren't sure how they're going to meet those bills, how how they're going to meet. Or have had treatment canceled outright. Mm -hmm. Let's be clear. This, what they did, is unconscionable. Yeah. Yeah. It, it. I don't know if we can get fined for saying this, (laughs) uh, so you might have to cut this out later, but it's a crime (laughs) against humanity to do Mm -hmm. this. Yeah. I mean, they took one look at these people who are asking them for what ultimately will be a fraction of their profits and decided not only are we going to oppose you on this, we're going to make it even worse because the thought of giving up even a small fraction of our power over you is too anathema to us. Mm-hmm. It, all that's true. It is abhorrent. It's you know evil. It's whatever you want to call it. It's also expected. 
Like yep. th this yeah. is what an employer is going to do when their employee goes on strike. And the timing of this is very convenient for our current Democratic primary debate, which is focused largely on health care and who has the best plan for solving this. And one of the criticisms of the Medicare for All bill put forth by Bernie Sanders has come from uh, folks like Joe Biden who said union folks like their health care plans as they are. You know, they don't want to give that up. And what happens is it's not really their choice whether they give that up. You know, it is the employer's choice. And that's true even if you aren't in a union. That's especially true if you're not in a union because your employer can change plans. They can do whatever they want with that. And mm -hmm. you may find yourself changing doctors anyway, whether you want it or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, you know, private insurance and especially insurance through your employer gives you the illusion of choice. Mm -hmm. Like, like with so many other products and capitalism, you're, you're, the product they're selling is your life. And you're just choosing if you want to pay for the high deductible plan or, or go for something that's got mm -hmm. a copay on it. And if you go for the copay plan, they will somehow make sure that that one is prohibitively expensive versus the other one. Yeah. It's like, it, and to me, it's absolutely ridiculous that anybody in the year of our Lord 2019, that somebody could say, oh, yeah, people like this system. It's great. I just. Even if it is a, a leverage point for unions, no. It, you cannot say that with a straight face. I, I forget who said this, but there was somebody who pointed out that whenever somebody says, well, union members don't want to give up their health care plans, or I don't want you They've to... They've negotiated hard for those plans. Right. You know? They always say this as though the alternative is nothing, mm -hmm. right. You know, which it's not. The whole point of a Medicare for all or a single payer or any other single payer health plan, again, this is the worst possible case you can make for it. But the idea is supposed to be that the pool is so large mm -hmm. that it has a lot more negotiating power than any one employer could have. Mm -hmm. exactly. So they're even from the business perspective, which uh, that would mm -hmm. that's still a net positive for no matter how golden your healthcare plan is. It is. And and ultimately, it's. I think employers understand that not having to pay for part of a, a insurance plan for their employers and and not having that burden on them, not having to deal with the ACA, you know, their mandate for full-time people having the health care. Open they, enrollment is fun, though. Oh, it's so much fun. It's great. It's so much choice. Oh, it's good. Um, but I, employers ultimately know this, and they know that their lives – would be better, their lives of their employees would be better, but then they would actually have to give their employers some directly tangible version of a raise or some kind of betterment year after year. Mm -hmm. And they could no longer say, well, your health care costs went up so much, so we actually can't give you and, any and kind of raise. And the health care costs have been a sticking point in the negotiations between the UAW and GM. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, workers have pointed out that because of you know the cost of living increasing and interest uh, inflation rather the workers will end up not making as much in this new contract that GM has proposed as before because the healthcare costs aren't being covered as much. Mm -hmm. mm. Ultimately, you know, like I said, employers know this, and they know this, and they don't want to give em employees anything that would actually make their lives better because if their lives got too much better, then they wouldn't necessarily have to rely on work to survive. 
Employ- and there goes your workforce. That that's exactly it. Employers don't want to do any. It doesn't matter how nice your boss is. It doesn't matter how much they claim to be looking out for you. Employers are in it for one thing, and that is to have power over their employees. That is it. It comes in the form of their paychecks. It comes in the form of their health insurance. And again, this uh, this GM strike and, and the stuff that we've been covering here should be proof positive. And, and the fact that employers are not en masse mm-hmm. rallying to support any kind of national health care plan that could save them a ton of money mm-hmm. tells you – that what they care about the most isn't even profit. Mm-hmm. It's profit extracted through the literal flesh and blood of their workers. That's what they want. Everything else is secondary to that. Exactly. And conversely, if you know this current status quo gives companies that sort of leverage and power over their workers, what could we imagine if, you know, your health care was just taken care of. If we had something like a single-payer system where you didn't have to get that through your employer. You you wouldn't be able to force striking employees to come back to work by denying their health insurance, for one. It, it would give workers a little bit more leverage over their employers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We think of the labor market as a market, and we say, oh, well, if a worker isn't satisfied, they can just go there, and you know, supply will meet demand, and wages and will be the price, and blah, blah, blah. The point is, they have only just now discovered that the labor market doesn't work like that, and that workers have limited choices and resources. Like, if there's only one big employer in town, you can't leave and go work for somebody else. If you have one person or one source of healthcare in your country, which is your employer, you can't just leave your job and go find something better. That's a, employers have a complete monopoly over the lives of the people making the money. You ke- workers don't have a choice yeah. in this. And it, it, it is surprising to me that we're only now looking into this as, as a it, field of education. But. It's literally classical economics and that just yeah. like the Romans, they consider workers to be animate property. <laughs> Love to be animate property. Indeed. I can't speak to the economy of ancient Rome, but I can say <laughs> that, you know, in our present day, you know, it is, you're right, there is a level of, ownership that comes with, you know, being the employer. There's, it's not just, you know, here's your eight hours a day. You know, it's increasingly, it's, this is the control I have over you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, and healthcare is one, only one, but, you know, because there are multiple of these, one vector through which they use their power. It is. It's just, it's because healthcare is literally life or death that it, it, I think, has reached the point in our consciousness that it has. It charges the issue. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, what are what are you going to do? You go to the doctor and they say, well, you know, I you're having a heart attack right there. Please give me $100,000. What are you going to do? Sorry, we're not in your network. <laughs> yeah, yep. exactly. Sorry, we're not in your network. So actually, it's half a million dollars. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Or you die. Like, that's the level to which this issue has come to a head. And employers know this. They know it. No, and not only do they know it, but they're afraid of it. They know that each time that we manage to chip away at their control over us, each time that they lose a little bit of future leverage over us, that's a chance for a victory that they simply cannot abide. Because no employer 
no matter how much they claim that what they want is a free thinking and creative and independent and blah, blah, blah workforce, which I'm sure some employers don't even pretend to care, but mine does. Uh, so I have to mention that. No matter how much they say that, they don't actually mean that. The moment that your free thought and creativity and imagination and vision impinge on their ability to affect your life unilaterally, they will suddenly become just as dictatorial as any 1930s company, as any mm -hmm. uh, mining concern that would hire the Pinkertons. They have not changed in 150 years. That's why it doesn't matter if you're a miner or an auto worker or a secretary or a teacher, you need a union because unfortunately the fundamental relation at play has not changed since the beginning of capitalist modes of work in this country. And it's been good, you know, in recent years to see some of this turn around to we've seen, you know, teachers and baristas and all these disparate groups who you might not necessarily associate with union labor the way you do auto workers, they have seen what you are arguing. They have seen that a union is best for them. They have seen that collective power is good thing to have. You know, it, it beats out, you know, trying to make it on your own. Yeah, exactly right. It turns out that as an individual employee, you will always be on the losing side because mm -hmm. you're not, as Lou was saying, you're not a consultant. You're not somebody who's drawing six different six-figure paychecks from every institution that is just throwing money at you. You're somebody who needs a job that you can work to get your health insurance and maybe some piddly retirement benefits. And there might be other things that are in it for you. But ultimately, you need to eat. You need, to, uh, you need a place to sleep. You need a place to have your stuff and you need to buy things every so often. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, you have to work the way that yeah. we've done it in this country. And if you're one person trying to make that deal with an employer who is infinitely more powerful than you and that this country has allowed to become infinitely more powerful than you, you are going to lose. Mm -hmm. So there is no way forward but to come into contact with others and and, and form that power into a unit that can actually bargain, that can actually negotiate from a place of strength, that can protect each other. Mm -hmm. It may seem to some of you listeners that this has been a much broader episode than ostensibly one about, you know, a automobile worker strike, but it's because of something that we come back to on the show, which is that all these, you know, fights, all these struggles are connected. They're shared in many ways, you know. The work of, you know, a barista at Spot, which recently unionized here in Rochester, is obviously much different from the work at a GM plant. But there are elements of overlap. There are things which stay the same no matter when or where you are when you're talking about working in the capitalist economy of the United States of America. And to, to that end, solidarity is a good thing to have. And uh, speaking of which, Noah, I know there's something you've been wanting to... So... If you're somebody who's been listening to this episode and preferably agreeing with what <laughs> preferably yeah if you've been you might be interested to know that actually uh, you'll be listening to this on a Wednesday this very day there's a there's an action in solidarity with the UAW strike it's at Rochester Components 1000 Lexington Avenue right here in Rochester uh, I have it on good authority that some uh, very sympathetic contingents will be showing up to the picket line mm -hmm. from 5 to 7 p.m. It's, um, you know, solidarity is a good thing. You know, it is good to, you know, have the back of 
these auto workers now because there will come a time when you're back, you know, you need someone to have it for you. Absolutely true. I, I have harped on this point many, many times before, but as a non-union worker, the thing that keeps me paid as well as I am, the thing that keeps my benefits as good as they are, is the fact that there are strong unions in the very same field of work that I am in. Mm-hmm. Without unions, my job would be a lot worse. So I'm very, very lucky to have very strong teachers unions in this area uh, because they directly, and my management will never stop complaining about this, mm-hmm. they make it harder for them to lowball us. Yeah. Every victory for your fellow worker is a victory for us all. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately we do have nothing but each other. Yeah. This has been an important episode, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Not, not that mm-hmm. our others aren't, but... Um... <laughs> Yet another important episode of Punching Out. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm Ryan. I'm Noah. I'm Lou. This is Punching Out. (laughs) You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.